Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Chirps, one of the many Cardinals-related podcasts for Birds on the Black. I'm Tara. He's Alex. And I'm back in this co-hosting chair for the first time in what feels like forever. So, Alex, hi. Uh, I'm glad to be back with you. I'm not so excited to talk about this team, but I'm excited to chat with you. (laughs) Well, first off, hello. Uh, Second, congratulations. And third, uh, it has been a long time, and I hope you have uh, been doing better than the Cardinals. <laughs> I think that's a low bar, but <laughs> I have to say, I feel like I'm I'm well above that mark at this point. Thank you uh, for the kind words, and thank you for holding down the fort with the show while I was gone. You had some awesome guests. I enjoyed listening to the shows as I had a little bit of time moving things in and rearranging the the, the place and um, finding homes for some wedding gifts and all those things that came along with the last month or so. But yet not a lot of fun getting back to watching baseball and seeing how things are going. Uh, the Cardinals have decided to hover around or under, I should say, 500 at 38 and 41 as we record today, after finally a win against the Diamondbacks in the midst of what was supposed to be a, a relatively easy stretch of games with opponents that should not have been particularly challenging, just based on the seasons they've put together so far. Um, we'll talk more about that in a second. But first, I just saw before we started recording, and you may have seen this already, but Adam Wainwright has evidently said publicly that he plans to retire after either this year or next year, but he will not pitch beyond that. Talking uh, to Ken Rosenthal, I believe, saying that, you know, his family needs him to be a dad at this point in their life. Of course, we heard uh, several weeks ago now that he had to take a a short leave of absence to go be with his family while they struggled through a a period of dealing with COVID-19. And it seems they're all on the up and up from that. But thoughts on Adam Wainwright publicly saying the career is coming to an end? Well, he is in his age 39 season. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So if he would hang it up at the end of this year, I think he'd be 40. And that's in and of itself an accomplishment. Um, and it. I almost wish he would make a definitive statement that this is my last season to give me an excuse to want to tune into this team at least every five days. Uh, That said, selfishly, I would love to see him pitch next year as well. If, as it sounds, that is currently an option on the table. One, because he is... Perhaps my favorite Cardinals player post Ozzy Smith. Uh, although that's there's a lot of people in competition there. I mean that that's Albert Pujols' career. That's you know Chris Carpenter's career. That's a that's a lot of a, a lot of good players. But he has meant that much to the organization, to my fandom. That selfishly, I would love to see him back next year. Also, because I think the team could use him. <laughs> he, <laughs> with with Jack Flaherty hurt, he might be our most dependable starting pitcher that we have right now, and that's not good. But <laughs> that's not but, how they drew it up. No, <laughs> no, it's definitely not how they drew it up. But if we're in, and if you had told us that uh, four years ago, where his career looked like it would have probably been over by now then we would have thought we were in even bigger trouble than we are in right now. And we might be in big trouble right now. I, I think they are in big trouble right now. Not, not, none of this might stuff. I think might left, left the barn uh, maybe a week, a week and a half ago. Yeah, probably but, after losing both games to Detroit <sighs> and then immediately following that up with continuing to lose to the Pirates. It felt like there was a line there that that was crossed, uh, perhaps more than it had been to that point. Um, at, at this point, Adam Wainwright kind of is the only reason to tune in and watch games every five days, because at least he continues to to do what Adam Wainwright has been able to do in defying time <laughs> and getting better in the last couple of seasons as well. The rest of the team, not so much. And we were talking before this um, about 
what we wanted to talk about on this show and how we wanted to go about talking about this team. Um, but <laughs> there's just, I, I believe Alex, your term was we, there's not much other than the entire train wreck. <laughs> well, so where, where do we start with this team and the fact that underperforming doesn't sound like strong enough of a term uh, uh, challenged by injuries doesn't seem like strong enough of a concept. We've heard from people within the organization this week responding to the idea that their game planning isn't good enough. Their mid game adjustments aren't good enough. They're selling out for the slugging, which is a ridiculous comment in and of itself. And then we heard from John Mozalak in response to some of this, basically saying, well, yeah, but I mean, there are a lot of moving parts and they're all bad. So I don't know how you blame one. (laughs) Where do you go with kind of looking at who this team is, what isn't working, which is pretty much everything and uh, how to even talk about it at this point. (laughs) Well, if they're selling out for slugging, uh, that doesn't say much because they're 26 in the league in, in slugging percentage. It's a team that isn't good at anything <laughs> is how I would look. at. I mean, you know, if you want to squint and look at the pitching side, you can say they don't really give up a lot of home runs. And, and that is true. They don't give up a lot of home runs. But beyond that. Maybe that's because they don't throw a lot of strikes. <laughs> right, right. It's hard <laughs> to give up a home run when you're walking a guy. Uh which they still have the highest walk rate by far in the in the entire league. And pitching seemed to be the biggest concern for a while. At least it was a couple weeks ago, for me at least. It's what was first on my mind. But if you look at the stats, you could almost argue that the biggest problem is the offense. They rank near the bottom of the league and almost any statistical category that matters uh, runs 25th uh, on base 28th 28th slugging as I said 26 so that in OPS they're 27th in the league WRC plus 26 it's just not a good team they the defense I guess is fine you know another thing if you want to squint and say well this isn't terrible uh, they aren't fun to watch they that quote from Major League when Ricky Vaughn is doing horribly, and but someone asks for his autograph anyway, and there's that line. Well, you know, it, even if you're bad, at least at least if you're doing something colorfully, people will notice. Uh, that's yeah. that's not the exact line, but that's basically what he says. No one on this team is doing anything colorfully. There's no one on this team doing anything that real that is uh, making me want to tune in and watch them. And I, I haven't felt this way in a while I think in in past years I've always thought like it's gonna they're gonna be okay uh they might not make the playoffs but they're gonna end up winning 86 or 87 games it's gonna be fine um this is not that bad of a team if you look at certain aspects you know the offense might not be great but the pitching's okay blah 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 I don't feel that way about this team I, I think barring some big changes that they are going to end the season looking like they look right now, which is a below 500 team, which is terrible. You should, the Cardinals should not finish below 500. And I I ask for two things every year, finish ahead of the Pirates and finish above 500. Uh, Only doing one of those things is not acceptable. (laughs) And, you know, and they're near the halfway point. I think they're at 79 games on the season. They're at like a 3% chance to make the playoffs. They are as close as they are to Pittsburgh, who are are in dead last. Not just last, they are in dead last, as they are to first place. They they currently sit eight games out of first place. That is huge. They're not going to make a wild card spot. So... It just... I, I thought John Fleming made an interesting point in an article yesterday where he talked about kind of like what may have gone wrong here. And there were several things addressed, but the thing that stuck out to me is he noted that some of the big free agent signings like Mike Leake, Dexter Fowler, and Andrew Miller were, were the type of guys and who gave the type of production that the Cardinals could consistently rely on getting that same production from players they developed 
without having to go on the free agency market. And, and to be fair, two of those three free agents, Fowler and Andrew Miller, I was very excited when they signed those guys, and I advocated for signing both those guys. And Mike Leak, I was more of a toss-up. I, I didn't have strong feelings either way. But I, but I think that's a good point nonetheless, which is that for a team that we always thought was perhaps one of the smartest teams in baseball, they seem to have kind of mismanaged that middle spot and relied on these free agent signings that don't move the needle that much and could have been filled in by players from within the organization. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. I'm thinking back to, I just had a conversation with Ben Cerruti and a couple of others on his podcast for a roundtable discussion leading up to the trade deadline, sort of with the overarching idea of buyers, sellers, what do the Cardinals do? But we kind of veered off onto this what went wrong <laughs> tangent that I, I'm fascinated by a lot of the different approaches to where did this go wrong? What happened? And one of the things that you'll hear in the conversation on that podcast, because obviously you should listen to it when it comes out, is that um, there is this gap in the system of minor league talent, right, where the the kind of stars of the minor leagues right now are versus their readiness for the major league roster, but also in terms of just kind of role player guys that don't necessarily have to be the stars. They don't have to be the Arenado or the Goldschmidt, um, but they just have to be able to fill in consistently around them. And, you know, we kind of talked that maybe those are the pieces that this team doesn't have but also, I, I made this suggestion, and I'll present it to you as well, that guys like Harrison Bader or even Tyler O'Neill or maybe even Tommy Edmond, although I think he's closer to that role player that fills in in between the superstars kind of piece than the others, maybe they're they're closer if you put it on a spectrum from like Jeremy Hazelbaker flash in the pan success for a quick minute to the superstars of today Tatis Acuna Vlad Guerrero whatever pick one of those guys that the Tyler O'Neill and the Harrison Bader and maybe even the Paul DeYoungs of the Cardinals organization are closer to the Jeremy Hazelbaker side of the spectrum than the Acuna side of the spectrum or the, you know, pick one of the the, the young superstars of, of the day, right? And maybe the problem when they're filling in with those guys that you just mentioned, those free agent signings that are fine but don't really move the needle, is that the talent that is coming up from within the organization is less of the consistent everyday role player that you know you can count on to be part of the process and more of the, hey, if they get hot, they're really great. But if not, we have a gap that's super wide <laughs> in this lineup. I, I don't know. Maybe that's part of the missing element in where this went wrong way back when, and this is the result of it today. So are you saying that maybe the the player development has either taken a step back or is not all that it's talked up to be or a little bit of both? I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think, well, for example, and we've talked about this before, right? Harrison Bader came up and had that wild major league debut half season. And all of a sudden he was the next big thing. I think that instant expectation is a problem because we don't know who that player is going to be yet. And all of a sudden you have Harrison Bader trying desperately to live up to that first half season when maybe that's not the player that he is. Maybe that was his Jeremy Hazelbaker half season and he's good, but not great since then. And that's just the player that he is. This is not to disparage any of those players just to kind of look at the reality of what's happened and go, okay, maybe maybe the expectation of who Harrison Bader was going to be was off by the organization. And that set them up to kind of build around players that shouldn't have been the pieces they built around. They should have been the pieces that were the fill-in. So the expectation seems to be off, but maybe the development isn't quite there with this sort of generation of the organizational talent like it was 
when you look back at 2011 and you have half of the World Series roster that played in the minor leagues together and came all the way up through the system together. That that doesn't really seem to be there, but they want Harrison Bader and Tyler O'Neill and, you know, fill in the blank with the rest of those pieces. Lane Thomas, Tommy Edmond, Paul DeYoung, those to be the same core pieces of the success that the David Freeze and the Daniel Descalso and the, you know, those guys were John in, Day, in yeah. that group. Yeah. Well, I, I, I certainly agree that a player like Harrison Bader is, is nowhere near Tatis or Acuna or Vlad Guerrero. Gosh, it feels so weird saying Vlad Guerrero and not and right. not be talking about other Vlad Guerrero. Uh, that's a that's a sign. I'm I think I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I don't know if I totally agree in that. I think Harrison Bader is a legit MLB starter in MLB. I I think he is exactly who we kind of expected him to be, which is a good center fielder and hopefully an average bat. And I certainly hope the club didn't think like this was the type of centerpiece you can build a team around, but more viewed him as this is a type of player who can be valuable to your team and can be a starting outfielder for a couple of seasons. I do wonder if we one overrate the Cardinals kind of player development and just like the acumen of the front office because of how lucky they got by drafting Albert Pujols in the 13th round and they were able to (laughs) have this generational talent, one of the greatest baseball players to ever play, fall into their laps and and get kind of all the credit for it. Uh, I mean, I think most people recognize that he was drafted in the 13th round and no one's acting like the Cardinals found this diamond in the rough. Um, But while the Cardinals were winning with Pujols, article after article was written about how this is one of the best front offices in baseball. And and I don't think that wasn't true. I just don't think they were operating on a level that was so distant from everyone else. They had a player who was operating on a level who was playing at a level that was so distant from everybody else. Once that player leaves to the front office's credit, they had a very good core around Albert Pujols still because you don't win with just a player like Albert right. Pujols. You have to have Albert, you know, we've seen that with Mike Trout. We, you saw that with uh, Ted Williams. You saw that with Barry Bonds. Uh, these players went to the postseason, but they weren't postseason mainstays. And these are some of the greatest players to ever play. You have to have teams around them. And the Cardinals did a very good job of doing that. They, they made good trades. They drafted well, you know, the 2000, is it the 2009 draft that's going to be talked about for, for a while and was certainly talked about a lot, you know, around that time. Drafted very well. And, but eventually when the high-end talent runs out, you can't continue to skate by on, on drafting pretty well and, and developing players pretty well. You have to have something to kind of push you over that, edge and they just haven't had it and they've had some bad luck's not the right word they had some trades that just have not worked out as they hoped but were but seemed like good trades at the time the marcelo zuna trade i was not at all worried about that backfiring and and it looked in but man i would love to have some of those pitchers on that on this (laughs) team right now uh and i'm i'm by no means calling the paul goldschmidt trade a, a backfire but i was also thinking at this point knowing if I could look forward and see that we we're going to assign him to an extension, being way happier about the way the trade turned out, whether similar to the M- Matt Holiday trade or, shoot, the Mark McGuire trade. You know, some of these, I don't think I expect them to be as lopsided as those, but I expected it to be feeling like it's paying more dividends than it is. And I, I think last thing I'll say is they just haven't had a ton of luck with a lot of these pitchers we thought uh, outside of Jack Flaherty, and whether you want to call that luck since he's currently injured, perhaps until August, perhaps past that, is is up to you. But for a while, it looked like they were developing pitcher after pitcher. And 
whether whether we're talking about Luke Weaver, um, gosh, who else were some of those guys? Uh, I mean, I mean, so many, right? Just starting pitchers coming up. I mean, back to Shelby Miller, even. You know? Absolutely, and they just haven't had quite. I think the return on on that kind of pitcher development that they were being lauded for and getting credit for when you really look back when you really look back at it they've had some good pitchers but they haven't had amazing pitchers from that crop of players and I don't know if you can hear my daughter screaming in the background but she just got back from like the swimming pool and you, you know what pool you know what a pool does to kids it wears them out and it turns them uh, kind of to an insane people so that's, that's <laughs> hey that's what summer's here. for right yeah yeah <laughs> no I think I think you're right I think that there is uh, on the pitching side a number of guys that I mean even even if you just look at who the Cardinals have right now guys who were starters in the minor leagues who are not starters at the major leagues for this organization you're looking at guys like Daniel Ponce Leon who were terrific uh at the, at the minor league level uh John Gant even great success at the minor league level. Alex Reyes, everyone expected to be a starter at the major league level. And right now he's not there. Um, there are a number of names you can mention to, to say, well, they tried, it just didn't work out. And maybe that's really what all of that is. I think the more concerning thing is the guys who have had success, who maybe more on the offensive side of things than otherwise, just can't find it (laughs) and it's like the entire group goes ice cold all at the same time we've seen this you know for a couple of seasons now where it's like all of a sudden they all forget how to hit baseballs um or how to approach a pitcher that does something different than the last guy they saw or whatever it is um the the comments about game planning certainly concerned me the idea that well we're just not making good adjustments seems like an obvious thing because you, clearly if you were adjusting you know you you wouldn't we wouldn't do the rinse and repeat every night over and over again Tara, but, real quick for people who might be listening um do you mind kind of reiterating the, sure. the comments on game planning uh and yeah. what, what edmund said or to the best of your because i i kind of caught them online and i don't think i'd be able to paraphrase it exactly right but well it, it was a post game uh interview and Tommy Edmond was asked kind of what's going on and um, I think may have been asked specifically about the hitting approach starting with Jeff Albert and company. I don't remember the exact question, but essentially what he said was uh, in two different comments, well, you know, I don't know that we're we're not making mid-game adjustments. And he also said, I don't feel like we've done a good job of prepping for individual pitchers that we're going to be facing, um, you know, and that that's on us to do a better job of preparing for the pitcher that day. Very concerning to me because that's, in my mind, the entire job <laughs> of a hitting staff, right, is to not just have an overall philosophy, but to make sure your hitters are prepared for the pitcher they're facing that day. And if that's not happening, is it on the players for just not putting in the effort? Is it on the coaching staff for not giving them relevant information? Is it on Mike Schilt for not being the overseer of all of that and going, hey, like clearly the results aren't happening. What are we not doing in our preparation to allow us to make those adjustments? Those were the comments from Tommy Edmond. Mike Schilt kind of had a, a little bit of a caveat that said, well, I wouldn't necessarily say he's totally wrong, but I think it's more of, you know, not executing the game plan as opposed to not having one, which puts the onus back on the players as opposed to on the coaching staff. Maybe the truth lies somewhere in the middle of all of that. And the follow-up from John Mozeliak when asked about Tommy Edmond's comments was basically, well, you know, there are a lot of coaches and you hope that everybody, all the players hear what they need to from one of those coaches, but we can't really figure out what they're not getting or who's not getting it or where it's not coming from or what they do need because there's just so many coaches. (laughs) So it was a very weird comment. It was a very weird way to, um, quite honestly, I didn't, I didn't think it reflected well on, on anyone in the process to basically just say, well, like there are a lot of moving parts. I mean, can you blame us? Um, (laughs) because that, 
it just it doesn't there's no ownership of the fact that hey we're actually just really bad right now um you know even mike schultz constant well we were really grinding out there we 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 fought really hard tonight (laughs) that that doesn't mean anything when the results are still the same so that's sort of the context of what has come out in the last week or so and the idea that you know maybe the process isn't good and maybe the process is fine and it's just not being applied well either way Alex I feel like at this point we're all trying to figure out how they fix it right how do you fix this how do you make this better is it a trade is it a somebody gets fired is it whatever that the the thing might be um but does do you feel like this team as it is has the potential has the ability to make a run and at least make things interesting in the second half because quite honestly right now what i see is repeat inconsistency that we've seen the last handful of years from an offensive standpoint like guys like tyler o'neill guys like even tommy edmund guys like uh you know Lars Nootbaar is a, a starting outfielder right now i mean the inconsistency offensively is not really a surprise because we've got streaky hitters in prime positions the struggles for Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arnato a bit more sketchy um but I think to make a run you have to find consistency somewhere and if they're game planning or their adjustments or their coaching staff or whatever it is are all bad I don't know how you find any consistency there I don't think this current iteration of this team fixes it. They have a entering entering this morning, entering today, uh, a negative forty six run differential uh, at close to the halfway point. That's a bad team, and our eyes are not deceiving us when we tune in and watch them. And luckily, luckily, I've been very busy lately, and I, I had to we moved, uh, and and so. Uh, even though I moved in the same within the same city, but still moved, so I was busy for a couple of days and got a nice break from from watching this team. But when I do watch them, they, they just they are not a good team. And I I think my last gasp of hope was this thirteen game stretch against these not so great teams, where you looked at the schedule and you're like, okay, go eight and five during that stretch and then and then and over the course of that stretch also like figure something out uh whether it's like kind of like the pitching coming into its own like that one sort of promising Oviedo start that he had I don't even remember who it was against now um figure something out so moving forward you're like we can sort of build on this. We fig- we the bullpen is starting to come together a little bit. We figured out the walks. Wh- whatever that sounds very simplistic, and it is. But up to this point, the thing you could still say about this team is they were at least beating the bad teams, and we can no longer say that. Uh, starting off this stretch against Detroit and Pittsburgh and going one and five to me was almost the final nail in terms of can this turn out to be an 80, 85, 86 win team? I don't think they can. I, I think that ship has sailed with this current roster. So it's, it's going to take some sort of shakeup uh, on the roster. In, in my opinion, uh, I, I'm not going to tell you what Colton Wong is currently on pace for uh, over 600 plate appearances, but he's looking like a five win player. He's looking, and it won't shock you either to know that his defense has also been pretty good uh, because it's always been pretty good, and it's been excellent the last couple of years. And when they made that decision this offseason to, to not pay him $12 million or $12.5 million, I don't remember exactly what it was. It doesn't matter because it wasn't a ton for a player as good as Colton Wong. We were sort of both befuddled by that. Um, we weren't we didn't think things were crater because we still both sort of believed in Tommy Edmond. Uh, but you noted Colton Wong, Stan and me, Colton Wong, I think appreciator, certainly a fan. I, I, I was concerned, but I, I also assumed they knew w- what they were doing and, and what was 
and, and that they had some grand plan up their sleeve. And it turns out they absolutely did not. They just didn't want to pay a player as good as Colton Wong $12 million. And I don't want to say that's unforgivable because that's a, that seems a little dramatic. But I still don't have a real good explanation for why you would do that during the same offseason when you are trading for a guy like Nolan, Nolan Arenado. Like, are you and, going for it or are you not? And that's it, what I was going to say before anyone listening goes, well, but they traded Colton Wong so they could get Nolan Arenado. No, no, no. The two are not related. <laughs> the two are not mutually exclusive. The Cardinals aren't even paying Nolan Arenado this season. So they certainly could have paid Colton Wong this year and been just fine. So connecting the two is irrelevant in any way other than to say they would have been playing on the same infield, which means what do you do with Tommy Edmond? That's the only way that it's relevant to com- to, to put the two into the same conversation in terms of it had to be one or the other. Absolutely. And even if you want to say, well, you're going to have to start paying Nolan Arnato eventually, of course, but two, you can also say, yeah, but Colton, we're, we're paying Colton Long for this year. And then after that, who knows, hopefully they'll resign him. And they'll figure the financials out because I think the Cardinal, Cardinals' financials are probably pretty good. They have I, a lot of money I, coming I, off the books next I, year too. So. I, I think they're doing okay. So it it was. I, I think now we can definitively say it was a bad off season. They they didn't have a good plan. They and and this is not Nolan Arenado's fault, who has been exactly what I thought he would be, which is uh, makes he, he's one of the few things. The problem is it's, you know, you can't count on tuning in every inning and seeing a great play at third base. You, you, you hope to see, you know, him make a nice play every so often. And, and it's great when he does, but it's not like that's something happening every, every inning. So, you know, so, Oh, I have to watch this inning to watch that great play by Nolan Arenado. You know, that's not something that happens all that often. Uh, but he's been he's been as good as advertised, in my opinion. I know some people thought his defense uh, was a little oversold, but I, I I'm guessing you know some of the errors we've seen don't seem to be uh, what's the word I'm looking for. I'm, they they don't bother me. I, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, but it's just a weird off season. It'd be like if the if the Cubs uh, you know after trading you Darvish then like signed like a, a picture of you, of you Darvish's caliber. You, you know, it's just, I, I don't know. It's just a very weird thing. I, I, and looking back now that we do have the benefit of hindsight, I'm fine saying like, yeah, they failed. And also speaking of hindsight, and I don't like to be a, uh, I have the receipts guy, but I do remember when Jeff Albert was hired and all these glowing articles and just puff pieces about him. And on this podcast, I was like, let's slow down. Like just because he was a hitting coach for a team like the Astros who have awesome players up and down the lineup, doesn't mean he's going to turn, you know, do miracle work with this, with this team. And that has certainly been the case, whether it's Jeff Albert's fault or not. Yeah. I mean, just like everyone may have gotten too excited about the very early version of Paul DeYoung or of Harrison Bader or of, you know, Miles Michaelis in his first season, whatever it is, there was a, perhaps a, a little bit unproven uh, element to Jeff Albert that everyone <laughs> jumped on before seeing the the actual proof of his, you know, magical formula that hasn't really seemed so magical for what it's worth i have heard that there are a number of guys in the minor league system that do appreciate the kind of philosophical approach to hitting that gives them very specific kind of check marks to okay do this do this do this and you'll move up in baseball um i'm not sure that really has the same merit at the major league level and it certainly hasn't had uh, the the results that i think would um kind of back up the idea that this is a good overall philosophy but you know for whatever whatever is happening whatever is not happening it seems like add players subtract players fire coaches you know add someone to that whatever it is there's a there's a 
a missing piece in whatever that process is that is not translating from sort of head knowledge of here's how this should work to the application in game of here's how it actually works and here's what we do to adjust when it isn't working like we thought it was going to. That isn't happening. And and quite honestly, that's the same thing that's happening with the pitching this year, which is very strange, you know, in terms of all the walks and and the inability to throw strikes and that's very bizarre to me and maybe a topic for another show just to really dive into that pitching situation because we had questions about the rotation. I don't think these were quite the questions we were asking in terms of what might make the rotation a bit of a problem. So we'll we'll save that for another time. I do want to mention quickly before we get to the chirp of the week that Alex we've talked about why do we tune in and watch this team? Well, I think a lot of people are asking that same question in terms of why would I spend money to buy tickets to go watch this team? We've said in years past when the Cardinals were struggling, will a drop in attendance get the attention of the front office and kind of force their hand and make them do something? (laughs) The, The attendance scenario is becoming a narrative throughout baseball that, hey, Cardinals fans aren't coming to games anymore. And this is after the stadium is opened back up to full capacity. We've seen full capacity crowds in almost every other city that the Cardinals have been in that were better than the full capacity uh, crowds that the Cardinals are, are drawing. Is that a real concern at this point in terms of the product on the field? Or do you think that it still has something to do with people just maybe being hesitant to come back to the live events, big crowds, that sort of thing? I think you're going to hear Mo and DeWitt say, practice that line word for word that you just said uh, when asked this question and and keep pointing to uh, anxiety that people still have from COVID and stuff like that. To answer your question, I think it's probably a big deal. I think to know for sure would be from a TV rating standpoint. I think if TV ratings are down and and down big, that's a big deal to me. Attendance for an actual game, and I've noticed it a little bit, and I don't want to let them off the hook, but I I do think it's hard to judge based on because of the time that we're currently in, and that they started the season, you know, at not full capacity and then shift to full capacity, and then, you know, you kind of might need a little grace period to slowly merge into where everyone's being like, all right, let's go to a game now. Now you also brought the point that we've seen like, you know, Wrigley was packed. Uh, Other places have been packed and that's, and that's true. So I guess I'm trying to give the Cardinals the benefit of the doubt here. I, I, I think overall it's a, it's mostly a league wide issue. I think going to baseball games just is not as pleasant of an experience, as easy as an experience as it used to be. And something that people will uh, fight through when they have a reason to fight through it, when they have a very good team, when the, and they have a team fighting for uh, whether it's a playoff spot or for the division or for or a team that they know will is capable of doing that. Uh, th- then they're willing to pay the parking fees. They're willing to pay, you know, however much it might cost to get four tickets to a baseball game and then concessions and all that. But when you add in all the, when you have all those headaches and then don't have the other part, which is that th- this is a team you want to come out and watch because they're doing exciting things on the field, then then I think that's a recipe for trouble. But I'm hesitant to say they have a big problem on their hands until I know for sure what's going on with the TV ratings. And I just lazily haven't even looked at that. But if the TV ratings are down, then that should absolutely get their attention. Yeah, yeah, very true. And I think there's... There's validity to the fact that it's somewhat across baseball, but I I think um, it's... It's 
a stark contrast when you see Cardinals fans not going to games because there's so much buildup about oh, the best fans in baseball, not necessarily from Cardinals fans, but sort of on a national perspective. Um, you know, other players talk about how the, the stadium's always full and the, the organization itself really likes to talk about their attendance records and those sorts of things. So maybe that's why it just seems a little shocking at this point, but maybe not the issue that um, it kind of seems like at the moment, although the team on the field is very much the issue <laughs> that it seems like at the moment. So, you know, we'll continue to uh, try to watch and maybe find ourselves doing other things instead, like we have the last couple of weeks, which is uh, maybe not so great for podcast analysis, but I think very relatable to a lot of people who are struggling to find, you know, reasons to watch this team right now. And that's not not a fun position to be in when, you know, your team has... Nolan Arnato and maybe the last years of Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina and uh, Paul Goldschmidt, who should maybe be better than he is right now and, and all those things. So, uh, you know, eternal optimist in me says, hopefully things are better this time next week. The realist in me goes, I don't know how that's even possible. So we'll see what happens with the current baseball team. But Alex, I'm very excited after a long absence to be here in real life to hear your chirp of the week for this show. Okay. Well, first I can tell you from an anecdotal standpoint that ratings are certainly down in the Chris Foley house uh, <laughs> as, as it per- pertains to the Cardinals. Um, I, I assume in, in yours as well. Uh, Likewise. We, yes. We've had some busy things going on, but, but still, uh, <laughs> All right, let's do the chirp of the week. Uh, Earlier this week on Twitter, I posted a video that makes its rounds uh, from makes the rounds from time to time, Um, and I think I've even tweeted it out before. But it's from, I believe, 1991, and it's when Randy the Macho Man Savage joined uh, George Grande and Al Herbosky in the booth for a Cardinals game. you know how they do this. They have a little guest come in and they talk to him for a half inning or, you know, if they're really good, it's like Johnny Carson inviting them over the couch and they get the, uh, the, uh, Hey, would you stay for another inning, you, you know, treatment. Um, and so, so that's what was going on here. And so uh, <laughs> Macho Man and his, uh, I, I believe wife at the time, although they made a mention that maybe it was, they weren't married yet and she's called Miss Elizabeth. So, Whatever, but anyone who knows wrestling knows um, he w- Macho Man was at least back in this day always accompanied by Miss Elizabeth. So they're in the booth with Al Herbosky and George Grand, and they are just um, holding court. And Macho Man, believe it or not, is actually a very charismatic guy. I don't know if you watched this video, but he is absolutely—he's uh, funny. He's self-deprecating. He and. Maybe even more surprising is so is Al Herbosky. Al Herbosky was actually (laughs) at one time in his life kind of a charming guy. Uh, But (laughs) as as they're talking to Randy Macho Man Savage, uh, this inning is actually uh, happening, is actually playing out. And it's a game against Cardinals and Cubs. And if you want to see what attendance used to look like at a baseball game, you know, when you could easily go and tickets weren't that expensive, tune into this game, which I think is from 1991, again, when the Cardinals were fine, but they weren't great. And they're playing. Granted, they're playing the Cubs, but it's just a packed and it's a it's a fully amped crowd. You can tell you got the old blue, you got the old Astro turf, you got the blue walls. You know, great shots of of old Bush Stadium. And during this happening, you get cameos from Milt Thompson who steals a base, Ozzy Smith walks, Ray Langford uh, comes up to bat, Pedro Guerrero gets a hit, I believe. Felix Jose legs out a uh, legs something out, and then Todd Zeal. <laughs> Hold on, real quick. Hey, Sade. I think mommy's that way. Okay. Um, sorry about that. Uh, Todd Zeal and then ends the inning and uh, Macho Man Randy Savage uh, actually uh, does some analysis on Todd Zeal's at bat. Now, why is Macho Man Randy Savage in the booth in the first place? I think most people know this, but maybe everyone, maybe not everyone. So I will tell you, Macho Man Randy Savage for a while played in the Cardinals farm system. He was born Randall Mario Poffo uh, in the Chicago suburbs of Downers Grove. Uh, I remember that high school. We did not like them at the high school I went to downstate. Um, whatever. Uh, 
son of Angelo Poffo, grandson of Italian immigrants. Uh, Angelo Poffo was also a professional wrestler, uh, but whatever. Uh, Macho Man signed with the Cardinals out of high school as a catcher. And so then he entered their farm system. And I was looking at his stats on, um, on baseballreference.com, one of the greatest websites of all time. And I happened to watch the movie Moneyball last night. I assume you've seen Moneyball. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, still all these years later, I still very much enjoy that movie. I think it's a, it's a very well done movie. Um, and that scene when, uh, to me, kind of one of the pivotal scenes in a movie, uh, I mean, it seems sort of outdated now, but when he keeps pointing over at uh, the Jonah Hill character and he's saying he gets on base, he gets on base, you know, when kind of the older scouts are asking, why are we signing this guy? Well, do you know what Randy Poffo did as a, a uh, minor league baseball player? He got what? on base. Uh-huh. Um, in 1971 with the Cardinals of the Gulf Coast League. I, I don't, it's just called the Gulf Coast League. Uh, with the Cardinals. Um, I, I don't even know the actual name of his team. It just says Cardinals <laughs> Golf Coast League. Uh, well, but anyway, he he had a batting average of 286, an on-base of 420, and he slugged 492. So he had a 912 OPS. Now, granted, that was only 81 plate appearances. But the next season, uh, same league, 197 plate appearances, 274, 365, 393. So Randy Poffo just got on base um he eventually it's kind of interesting he was in he was on a team called the orangeburg cardinals in orangeburg south carolina and they were what this was in 1973 then and they were what was called a co-op team which i believe means there were several players from different organizations on this same team and even then he had a 371 on base uh and that's when he's moving up in this system. And then he played for the Redbirds in the Gulf Coast League and had an on-base, only 75 plate appearances, um, but still had an on-base of 453. Um, and that was in the second half of 1973. And uh, Tito Landrum, uh, I think as we all know, uh, most of us know, was, was a teammate of his on these teams. And then he eventually made it to uh, Class A Tampa, um, and where he his bat he, he his batting dropped a little bit. He only hit 232, got on base 304, and slugged 358. Uh, and that was the last season he had in any sort of uh, professional setting. If you read his Wikipedia page, it says he was brought up as a catcher, and he he talks about being a catcher with Al Herbovsky, uh when someone steals a base during this inning, and he said, if I was a catcher, I would have thrown the ball over over the second baseman's head. Again, like I said, he was very self-deprecating. But it says on his Wikipedia page uh, that he had a collision at home plate and it kind of ruined his career. I don't know if that's true because it also says on his Wikipedia page that he attended Southern Illinois University uh, in Carbondale, the Salukis, uh, right? But I already mentioned earlier, he signed with the Cardinals right out of high school and immediately started playing minor league baseball with so I did a little research. I actually found something on Southern Illinois' website. It's kind of like this where you write in and they will answer a question for you. It's, it's like the, uh, the you, you went to college. Do you still get your college's magazine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Um, it's kind of like the Southern Illinois magazine where you can write in letters. And someone wrote, Randy, a.k.a. Randy Savage, a.k.a. Randy Mario Poffo, the professional wrestler, recently passed away. This was back in 2011. According to Wikipedia, he attended SIU. Again, this is on the Southern Illinois website. Can you confirm that he was indeed a student at SIU? And if so, did he play baseball and did he graduate? Answer. I spoke to Gene Green from the SIU Alumni Association, and he cannot find any record of Randy Poffo in the alumni database. He also contacted... SIU at Edwardsville, at Edwardsville to no avail. Several other units on campus have checked with admissions and a record and records about Poffo's degree information and can find no record of him attending the university. We also have no record of him playing baseball at SIU. Last year, in effort to confirm or deny his status as an alum, because apparently this had been going around the web, the Department of Athletics reached out to Randy. A package was delivered to his Florida residence and signed for but there was no subsequent response. So <laughs> I don't think he went to Southern Illinois is my point. Uh, it sounds very plausible because back then you often signed players who were 
who you caught wind of, and you often caught wind of the players who were close by, and Southern certainly close to St. Louis. But I don't think that's true. Nevertheless, he really did play for those other teams, because we know baseball reference would not lie to us, like Wikipedia (laughs) does sometimes lie to us. And he was certainly in the Cardinals uh, system. And I believe he also maybe played in the red system as well. Um, But the last thing that's kind of neat about him is his professional wrestling career began in 1973 while he was still playing baseball. It was during the offseason he started wrestling as the spider. Um, And I assume what happened is the injury to his shoulder, which obviously is very detrimental if you're trying to uh, make it as a catcher, happened soon thereafter. And he was basically a legacy uh, in the wrestling world because his father, Angelo Poffo, was a very well-known professional wrestler and promoter. And so he just said, well, I will play this hand instead. And he did it and became one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time. And uh, that is probably why he somehow made his way back into the booth at Old Bush Stadium to uh, sit in with Hrabowski and company um, for a half inning against the Cubs. And if you haven't watched that YouTube clip, I highly encourage you to do so. Granted, it's 10 minutes long, and I usually have a strict rule. I will not watch any video that shows up on my timeline that is more than 50 seconds long. Uh, but this one, I promise you, will be worth your time. And, and that is your Chirp of the Week. Uh, why talk about any of these current lousy Cardinals when we can talk about um, Randy the Macho Man Savage? I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. And for reference, the leading on-base percentage for the Cardinals right now is Dylan Carlson at 351. So, uh, yeah. I mean, to, to, to hammer home the point why we're talking about Randy Savage instead – uh, minor league stats, way better than the current major league stats for the Cardinals. So uh, that's your chirp of the week. It was good to be back with you today, Alex. It was very good to be back with you as well. And uh, I, I wanted, you know, I don't want to um, put you in a bad mood, but do you want to guess what Colton Wong is, Wong is slugging right now? I think I just looked at it a couple of days ago, and I want to say it was eight something. No, slugging. No, slugging. slugging. Sorry, I was thinking OPS. Yeah. 490. Uh, <laughs> 490. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Yes. That's... Be helpful, awesome. wouldn't it? Super. And what is his OPS? Well, his uh, you, you look like you're good at math, right? He, he, his on base is currently 349. So 349 plus 490. All right, do that in your head. Uh, 849. So 839. Okay. 839 yeah, eight OPS. Something. Right. Yes. Yeah, but, that... Uh, no. uh, well, you know, what could have been? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, on that note, we're going to leave you to uh, to think about that life choice that the Cardinals made and um, hopefully be back with you next week to uh, either share in the misery or talk about some miraculous turnaround that has happened in the last week. The Cardinals continue their uh, path through this uh, little stretch with teams they should be able to handle um, finishing up the series with the Diamondbacks. Then it's Colorado. Uh, their trip out west includes Colorado and San Francisco. And then they get the Cubs again, which didn't go so well the last time around. So we'll see where they're uh, where they're sitting heading into that series before the All Star break, which seems like it might be the perfect opportunity to reset um, or to just go home and think about what they've done <laughs> or what they haven't done. I guess until then, he's Alex. I'm Tara. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>